Hey, I'm Steph, and this is Not Today. Hello and welcome. I am coming at you live from Los Angeles. We are back, baby. Just visiting, of course. And if it sounds like I'm sick, it's because I'm sick. Which feels like a joke, that I would come to LA to get out of the cold, and then I catch a nice little cold. (laughs) It does kind of suck. But I just wanted to put that one out there because if I sound congested, it is because I am congested. But it's alright. The show must go on. I've got a big bottle of water right next to me, so we're gonna make it through. I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure you're not here to listen to me talk about my cold, so why don't we get started with this week's story? This week, we're going to be discussing the survival of Jessica Mullenberg. Before we jump into the story, I did want to give a quick trigger warning. This story does contain discussion of sexual abuse. But with that being said, let's get started. Our story takes place in 1995 in Wisconsin. 13-year-old Jessica Mullenberg moved from Eau Claire, Wisconsin to Stevens Point, Wisconsin with her mother, stepfather, and two brothers because her stepfather had gotten a new job. When Jessica and her family moved to Stevens Point, she was really happy about it, but they would be moving about 100 miles away from her father, Dale Mullenberg. The drive was around two hours to visit their father, so they agreed that the kids would visit Dale every other weekend since it was a bit of a longer journey. According to Jessica's mother, Monica, she and Dale had very different parenting styles. She was much more hands-on with her children. She always knew where they were, what they were doing, and who they were with. And Dale, according to Monica, was much more of a relaxed parent. He gave his kids more freedom and independence, which was a sore point between the two of them. Jessica loved to write. It was her favorite pastime and was an escape for her. She was a really smart kid and kind of a tomboy. She would always wear her hair in a ponytail, she rode her bike around the neighborhood, she played football, would sell cookies to the neighbors. She was a happy kid and loved being active, but she especially loved her writing since it was a way for her to release her feelings in a way that was only for her. Dale Mullenberg, Jessica's father, lived in a mobile home in Cozy Acres Mobile Village, and he lived with a roommate, Don Watkins. And it didn't take long before Jessica was extremely uncomfortable being around Don. On a few occasions, Dale would leave Jessica home alone with him while he was busy doing other things. Jessica knew she'd have to go visit her father, but she tried to get around it by telling her mother that she didn't feel well or things like that since she didn't want to give the real reason she didn't want to be there. And since Monica didn't know, she had to send her kids to be with their father. It was a court order and she would get in trouble if she didn't. But Jessica was scared. She did her best to stay close to her father and brothers, but she couldn't really escape Don because he would sneak into her room late at night when everyone was asleep to sexually abuse her. Jessica was a vulnerable, easy prey for Don, and the reason she didn't say anything to her parents was because he told her if she did, he would kill her family. And 13-year-old Jessica believed him. Not long after, Dale took Jessica to the park where they met Dale's new neighbor, 38-year-old Stephen Oliver, and his 13-year-old son, Ryan. Oliver was an English-slash-writing tutor. But Monica and Jessica had already known Stephen Oliver before that point. Stephen Oliver first met Jessica when she was eight years old, when he had moved in across the street from Monica's home and got a job at Jessica's elementary school as an aide. Monica had begun noticing that Oliver spent a lot of time with her daughter and kind of separated her from other classmates. Over those few years, she really started to worry about Oliver's intentions with her daughter because they had almost become obsessive. 
she was seeing some pretty major red flags. So she called Oliver and told him, look, I'm sure you're a nice person, but I don't feel comfortable with the relationship you've been forming with my daughter. So she asked him to stop seeing her. He was very apologetic and wished them well. And pretty shortly after that, Stephen Oliver moved out of that house. So Monica assumed that that chapter had been closed and she had nothing left to worry about. But to their surprise, he moved to the same neighborhood as Jessica's father. When Monica found this out, she brought her concerns to her ex-husband because she felt like this guy had some weird obsession with their daughter. But Dale said that he thought Stephen Oliver was nice, so there was no need to worry. Monica even called an attorney to see if she could get her husband to stop letting this man around her daughter, but it wasn't within her rights. And that just speaks to mother's intuition. She really knew something was off with this guy, and she was trying to do everything she could to keep him away from her daughter, but at this point, legally, it was out of her hands. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Something I'm really proud of is how much I've worked on myself and my relationships in therapy. A common misconception about relationships is that they have to be easy to be right. But sometimes, the best ones can happen when both people put in the work to make them great. Guidance and expertise from a trusted professional can give you fresh solutions to your most pressing issues. I think everyone can benefit from a little therapy. It can help you learn positive coping skills, how to set boundaries, and empower you to be the best version of yourself. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. And it's great because you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Become your own soulmate, whether you're looking for one or not. Visit BetterHelp.com not today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot not today. And because Monica was pretty vocal about how much she didn't like this guy, Dale wouldn't even tell her when Jessica would see him. Stephen Oliver explained to Dale that he had a contact at Random House Publishing and that he was kind of a scout and was on the lookout for children's stories and poems that he would submit to Random House. That was a pretty big deal. And that sounded like something Jessica would be very interested in because Dale knew his daughter loved to write. So he allowed Oliver to meet with his daughter to discuss the possibility of becoming published. When Oliver looked at her writing, he told her that she was really good and she could have a future in it. He offered to help her work on her writing, and there was a writing club that Oliver had put together for Random House where they would write poems and things to submit. And Oliver told Jessica that if the publishing company liked her work, she would be compensated for it. She could make a lot of money, like hundreds of dollars. And to a 13-year-old, that's quite a bit. So Jessica and her brothers joined this 12-kid writing club that Oliver had started. Over the next few weeks, Jessica learned that her father would be getting married, which was really good news because that meant that Don would be moving out of his house. And that meant that the abuse would stop. She could stop being terrified visiting her father. And with that fear gone, she was able to start focusing on her writing and just being a kid. Jessica had become really close with Oliver's son. They had a lot in common, and they were actually cast opposite each other in a play. Things were going really well, and it was around that time that Oliver told Jessica that Random House had paid her in advance of $500, and they wanted to meet her. Out of the 12 kids' stories he had submitted, they wanted hers, and they really wanted to meet her. But she and Oliver would have to travel to Madison, Wisconsin, which was around three hours away. 
Oliver asked Dale if Jessica could go with him. He told Dale that they had meetings booked for the next day, but he should have her back by 10 p.m. He made it sound like a super big deal, and it was really urgent that they go. He told him it would be a really good thing for her because it wasn't common that a young teenager would get published. So hearing that and being excited for his daughter, Dale told Jessica she could go with Oliver. Jessica knew her mother most likely wouldn't have wanted her to go with him, so she asked her father if he had cleared it with her mom, and he told her he had. And since she was just a kid and trusted what her father said, it was settled. She would go with Oliver the next day to Madison to get her short story published, and she was pretty stoked. The next morning was September 16, 1995. Stephen Oliver arrived at Dale's home at 7 a.m. on the dot to pick Jessica up for their trip. It was early in the morning, and Jessica was tired, so as Oliver drove, she fell asleep in the backseat of his car. He told her it was fine for her to take a nap since she had a big day ahead of her. And for two hours, Jessica took a peaceful nap. But when she woke up, she discovered her terrifying new reality. As she opened her eyes, she saw that her hands had been tied together in front of her, and her feet were tied together as well. Jessica had no idea where they were going or where they even were, but she asked Oliver what was going on. It was like he had completely changed. When she asked him if they were going to meet the publisher, Oliver told her there is no publisher. There never was. He told her, you are no longer Jessica. Your name is Cindy Johnson. My name is David Johnson. I'm your father. If anyone asks why you look so sad, it's because your mother and twin brother recently died in a car accident. Jessica was completely blindsided. She had no idea what to think. Why was he saying that? Where was he taking her? If she asked where they were going or am I going home, he would answer her question by just repeating what he had just told her. Or he would tell her that nobody loved her or wanted her and she wouldn't be seeing her family again since they wouldn't look for her. Her mind was racing as Oliver pulled his car into an empty section of an airport garage. Jessica, of course, was panicking because she had no idea what was going to happen to her. If she'd ever go home, if she'd ever see her family again, she asked him where he was taking her. But Stephen got out of the car and into the back seat with her. He pulled out a knife and cut off her ties and told her that she would be coming with him on a plane. And if she said one word, he would kill her immediately. At the time, airports didn't have security like they do now. This was pre-9-11, so they didn't have any metal detectors or cameras or really anything stopping any person to walk through and get on a plane. So Stephen had the knife to Jessica's back the whole time they were in the airport. That must have been such a terrifying, isolating moment for Jessica, walking through a crowded airport, terrified out of your mind, and seeing so many people, but truly believing that if you say one word, your life would end. Because she believed Oliver would stab her and kill her, because in the car, he kind of nicked her with the knife to show her, like, I'm not afraid to use this. So Jessica felt like she had absolutely no other choice but to listen to him. And also, it's hard to wrap my mind around being able to carry a knife basically on someone through an airport and onto a plane. I was very little when 9-11 happened, so I have no concept of what it's like to just walk through an airport and have absolutely no security. So that's insane that that was able to happen, but that's just how it was. They didn't even have to give their real names, and they didn't. They got to the airplane and she took her seat, and nobody asked them any questions about who they were or where they were going. Nothing. But even if they had, Oliver had given her this script to say, You're Cindy Johnson. I'm David Johnson. 
I'm your father and here's what happened. So even if someone had asked them questions, they probably wouldn't have been stopped, but nobody even did because nobody suspected anything. It was just a 13 year old walking through the airport with what looked like her father. So she was on her own. That night, they landed in Houston, Texas, and Oliver shuttled them to a nearby motel. Back in Wisconsin, Jessica's father was getting increasingly worried that his daughter hadn't returned home from her trip by early Sunday morning. Stephen Oliver had told Dale that they would be back by Saturday night at 10 p.m., and now it was Sunday morning, so way past when he said he would return Jessica. And although he didn't want to, that's when Dale called Monica. And he told her that he thinks Jessica may have run away from home. Interesting choice, to be honest. Because at that point, it feels like he knows what's going on. He just doesn't want to get caught and get in trouble. So he's saying that Jessica ran away from home. That's insane, considering if you tell the police that your daughter just ran away from home, they might not look for her as diligently as if it's a kidnapping case, which clearly it was. And I'm sure Dale kind of realized that pretty quickly. So when Dale told Monica that Jessica had run away, Monica knew that was nonsense. So she asked who Jessica had been with, and Dale didn't want to say it first. Monica yelled at him, demanding to know who Jessica had been with, and that's when she learned that her 13-year-old daughter was sent off alone with Stephen Oliver. Dale hadn't told Monica that Jessica would be going with Stephen Oliver for any period of time alone. She never would have let her daughter go with that man had she known what was going on, so she was absolutely livid. She told Dale he needed to hang up the phone and call the police right now. Her heart sank and began racing, not knowing what her daughter was going through. And Jessica was at the mercy of Stephen Oliver. He told her they were going to cut and dye her hair so she looked different, and he changed her into baggier clothing. Jessica wanted to run away so badly, but she couldn't. He always had his knife with him and was constantly threatening her with it. And there wasn't any doubt in her mind that he would stab her if she tried to run. Back in Eau Claire, Jessica's parents were being interviewed by local sheriff's department deputies. Dale was still trying to give Oliver the benefit of the doubt, saying maybe their car broke down, maybe they were stuck in Madison somewhere. But that obviously didn't make sense because if it had been innocent, they would have called. And Monica was insanely frustrated with him saying that because she knew Dale was only saying that to stop her from being mad at his poor choices. The police informed them that they had already checked with Madison PD and there were no accidents reported, so that was off the table. The only person they were looking for at that point was Stephen Oliver because clearly he had taken Jessica. So the deputies went to Stephen's home where they found his ex-wife with their son. At the time, Oliver had custody of his son, but shortly before then, he had his wife reunite with their son, and she was staying in the house with him. When she was questioned, she told police that Oliver had told her he had gotten a job in Detroit that he was taking, so he would be gone for a couple of months. Police were figuring out that Stephen Oliver had put a lot of preparation into kidnapping Jessica, which was very bad news. This was not a spur-of-the-moment thing for him. He had taken time to plan things. When authorities searched his house, they found a number of disturbing receipts from recent purchases he had made. He had gotten duct tape, rope, knives, and other things that could be used to restrain someone. Oliver hadn't left his ex-wife with a number to contact him, unsurprisingly. He just told her that he would be in touch. So local authorities wasted no time reporting Jessica's kidnapping to the FBI. 
they put out an ATL, which is an attempt to locate. And that went out nationwide with a description of the vehicle Stephen Oliver drove, a description of the occupants, and the license plate number. As law enforcement officers started their nationwide search for Jessica, Stephen Oliver started getting nervous. The two were still in that same motel in Houston, but Stephen began walking around the parking lot looking for license plates from Minnesota, Ohio, basically anything in the Midwest, because he was paranoid that someone would find them there. And the next day, he told Jessica they were leaving. They didn't travel far. They only went about 20 minutes from where they had last been. They were still in Houston, but not in a very good area. Any person they would come across, Oliver would give some sob story about how they were moving down south to start a new life. And Cindy, aka Jessica, was having a really hard time dealing with the death of her mother and brother in a car accident. And it worked, because at this new motel they went to, the lady at the front desk felt terrible for them and told Oliver that part of the hotel was under renovation, so she could give them a room back in the construction area free of charge. That was great for Oliver and terrible for Jessica because now they were in a part of the hotel that nobody else would be in. They were completely isolated and staying there for free. And it just sucks because that woman at the front desk's kindness and generosity was so amazing for someone who actually needed it or deserved it. But in reality, she was just helping this man continue to abuse and kidnap this girl. And of course she had no idea, it was just a terrible situation. The first time they opened the door to their room, Jessica said it was terrifying. It had been very dark and dusty and there were cockroaches everywhere. It was a nightmare. And back home, Monica was also living a nightmare and was starting to lose hope. To their surprise, a few days after Jessica had disappeared, her parents received a letter from Jessica. Her mother said it was Jessica's handwriting, but she knew that it was not Jessica's words. In the letter, it said, don't come looking for me, I'm in a safe place. The letter was trying to make it sound like Jessica had run away, but Monica said she knew how her daughter spoke, and that message sounded like it had been dictated to her, so they knew that was utter bullshit. Monica knew Stephen Oliver was a bad man, but even she didn't know how far back his abuse of Jessica went. Like I said, Monica had met Oliver way before her ex-husband, and Jessica at the time was only in third grade, and her mother didn't like Oliver because he would spend extra time with her daughter, but she didn't know how sinister that extra time actually was. Oliver would have Jessica follow him into his house, and he would lock her in a room with him and have her sit on his lap. Even though she was young, she knew that what was happening was wrong, and every time she left his house, she felt dirty, like she had done something wrong. She didn't know what was going on, but she knew it was bad. Monica hadn't been aware of that, but she could tell something was very off with Oliver, which was exactly why she didn't want her daughter around him in the first place. Sergeant John Vogler of Eau Claire County Sheriff's Office and Special Agent Jerry Southworth of the FBI dug into Stephen Oliver's background, hoping to uncover some clue as to where they could have gone. They searched his home computer and found nothing about a new job in Detroit, which meant that that was just a false lead. They discovered that Random House had never even heard of Stephen Oliver, which meant he was paying these kids their quote-unquote advances out of his pocket just to make everything look legit. Back in Houston, Jessica was in hell. She was in a daily routine of sexual, mental, emotional, and physical abuse. Food, drink, and bathroom privileges was something she needed to earn, and she spent her day tied to the bed. 
He continually told her that her parents didn't love her or want her. And he also told her it was a good thing that he wanted her because nobody was out there looking for her. And if he didn't have her, she would just be out on the street. And even though Jessica knew that wasn't true, after hearing it so many times, it began to take a real toll on her and she began to believe him. Thinking the police weren't looking for her, Jessica decided she had to take things into her own hands. Oliver had left the hotel room, and Jessica had managed to get free from the ties on the bed. But the problem was, it was a really old hotel that actually had just one key for the door. And if the person who had that key locked the door from the outside, anyone inside the room could not get out. So Jessica couldn't get out because she didn't have the key. Oliver always had it with him. Sounds like a really terrible design and hopefully is the reason they were renovating the hotel in the first place, but oh my god, that is so dangerous. And again, just the worst possible luck for Jessica because although that woman at the front desk was just being so kind, or at least she thought she was, she was literally helping Oliver lock Jessica into the room. To make matters even worse, their room was surrounded by vacant rooms that were under construction, so she couldn't even scream or bang for help because there was nobody around to hear her. So she tried to pick up the phone to dial her parents' number, but Oliver had rewired the phone so the numbers were not in their normal place. So if she tried dialing a 4, for instance, it would actually be a 7. Or if she dialed a 6, it would be a 2. So he was able to rewire the phone, making it impossible for Jessica to call her family or really anyone. Stephen Oliver was able to pick up a job as a painter at the hotel they had been staying in, so he was always nearby. When the staff asked him about his daughter, he told them that she wasn't adjusting well to the trauma she had been through, and she was homeschooled, so that's why they never saw her. And they believed him, because he had a very compelling backstory. After being held for almost three weeks, Jessica decided she would attempt another escape. This time, it would be while Oliver slept in the room with her. She hoped that Oliver had just left the key on the table in front of the bed, but Oliver had woken up to find Jessica looking for the door key. And to her shock, he had the key with him while he slept. There was no way he was going to leave the key unattended, even if he was in the room with her. The longer Jessica stayed in that hotel room, the harder it became. She would think about the fact that she couldn't even figure out how to use the phone to call her mom, so maybe she was stupid, like he said. He would constantly tell her how useless she was, how stupid she was, how ugly she was, just ripping her apart verbally. And as weeks turned into months, Jessica began losing all hope. She didn't think that she would ever see her family again. But luckily, investigators in Wisconsin had finally uncovered a new lead. In November of 1995, two months after Jessica's disappearance, investigators had found Oliver's 1986 Oldsmobile Calais in the parking lot of the Kansas City airport. He had chosen to drive to Kansas City, even though it was much further away from where they lived because he knew it would take them way longer to find his car. And he was right about that. But finding Oliver's car gave investigators a renewed sense of hope. As winter approached, they worried that he had been keeping Jessica in a place with no heat, so they were hoping they'd be able to track down where he had taken her. After several days of searching his car and any logs of outgoing flights, they couldn't find anything. There was no record of Stephen Oliver or Jessica Mullenberg because, like I said earlier, they had used fake names through the airport. It was horrifying to know that Jessica could have been anywhere. Jessica's mother couldn't help but imagine her daughter on the other side of the world. 
Discovering Oliver's car was the last piece of the puzzle they had, so the only thing they had left to do was to put flyers all over the country and hope that someone recognized them. Jessica's parents were able to get her face on billboards and on posters that were put on semi-trucks. Drivers would also take flyers on their journeys, spreading somewhere around 20,000 of them all around the country. They didn't have the internet, so that was their best option. They had to do that because Jessica's chances of survival went down significantly with every day and week and month that passed. The entire time Jessica was trapped in the hotel room, Oliver called her Cindy and constantly told her that nobody loved her or wanted her. Jessica wasn't allowed to eat unless Oliver gave her food because he told her she was fat and ugly, so she was being starved. And because she had been living in that state for so long, she really started to internalize everything he said to her. After three months of captivity, she even truly started to believe that she was Cindy Johnson, like Oliver said. She had really begun forgetting her name. In her mind, she knew that her parents and her friends were most likely still looking for her, but the image of them had really faded. It was hard for her to remember who they even were. Investigators were worried that after long enough, the initial excitement and newness of kidnapping Jessica would wear off for Oliver, and he would kill her and hide her body. After three months Jessica was missing, America's Most Wanted aired Jessica's story and displayed Stephen Oliver's image as the man who had abducted her. Monica had been really leaning on her brother for support through this period. He had really stepped up to aid in the search for Jessica, and he later said that he didn't care how long it took to find her. He never would have stopped looking, even if it had gone on for 10 years. He and Monica really felt like Jessica was still alive out there, and they wouldn't rest until she was found. After three months of searching for her, Monica tried to hold it together on Christmas morning for the sake of her family. I cannot even imagine what that must have been like. Having a holiday and knowing that your daughter is extremely unsafe, not knowing anything that she's going through, not knowing where she is, if she's even alive, that is an impossible thing to go through. And of course, Jessica was the only thing that her mother could think about because she knew that the more time that passed, the worse their chances got. But thankfully for them, they wouldn't have to wait much longer. December 28th, 1995, 104 days after Jessica's disappearance, FBI agent Jerry Southworth finally got a break in the case that they had been waiting for. He received a call at about 11.30 that night from America's Most Wanted. They had been contacted by the hotel manager who had recognized them on the show and reported it. She told them she was sure the man and the young girl who she was letting stay in the hotel were the ones who were on America's Most Wanted, only they had been using different names. And Jerry Southworth said that he was sure this woman had gotten it right, so he called the FBI office in Houston and told them the news. They immediately called this hotel manager, and it was honestly amazing that she had called it in because Oliver, like I said, had dyed Jessica's hair. He cut it, he made her wear baggy clothes, so this woman actually hadn't even recognized Jessica. She had recognized Stephen Oliver. But because she recognized Stephen Oliver, she knew that he had a young girl with him that was about the same age as the girl that was on America's Most Wanted, and she put the pieces together pretty quickly. But even if Jessica had been out and about in the world, which clearly she wasn't, she spent three months in a hotel room, potentially people would not have even recognized her because of how different he had made her look. 
So that tip led authorities straight to Stephen Oliver's hotel room. Jessica had been woken up that night by banging on the door. She heard someone yell FBI, and she had no idea what was going on or why they were there. When they busted into the room, Jessica's first reaction was fear, because she didn't think that anyone would be coming for her. It had been so long that as Jessica was being rescued by officers, she maintained that she was Cindy Johnson, and they were taking her father away. The brainwashing and manipulation had run so deep over those three months that she had been trapped in that hotel room. Jessica really had no idea why they were there in that moment, and she swore up and down that she was, in fact, Cindy Johnson. She was extremely confused. They took her down to the FBI headquarters, where agents had to flip through photos of Jessica's past to show her who she actually was. They showed her her real family, and after a while, it slowly started to click for her. She remembered she did have brothers, and then not long after that, she recognized herself in the photos they had been showing her. At home in Wisconsin, Monica was prepping for another sleepless night without her daughter when she received a call from the FBI. She had been on the phone with her sister, and they were actively grieving the fact that Jessica wasn't home, and it was Christmas time, which was only making things worse. But after hanging up, she immediately got that call from the FBI agent in Eau Claire who told her, we got her, we got Jessica. Monica couldn't even believe her ears, but she was absolutely elated to learn that her daughter was safe and Stephen Oliver was in custody. Agents had even gotten Monica on the phone with Jessica and she was able to speak with her and help her remember who she was and that she would be seeing her family again. Monica immediately went down to the airport to fly to Houston and once she got there, after 104 days, she was finally reunited with her daughter. Jessica said that was the first time she felt even somewhat safe when she saw her mother at the airport, but she said later that she hadn't actually felt safe until she was home in her bed. That would have been such a surreal thing to experience. I mean, hours earlier, she didn't even know her real name. And although she slowly started to remember things, of course she wouldn't feel like it was real until she was actually back in a place that she recognized and knew was safe. But even though Jessica was finally home and safe, she had a long road of recovery ahead of her. Not only did she have to work through all of the emotional trauma Oliver had put her through, but also the physical damage from Oliver beating her. Jessica needed to have multiple surgeries. And shockingly enough, she was even bullied at school for what she had gone through. Kids criticized her for not being able to escape on her own. I could not believe that when I heard that. I mean, I knew kids were cruel and they don't understand things and they're very, very insensitive, but that's crazy. To know that your classmate had been kidnapped for over three months and to respond to that with anything but kindness... I mean, hell, at the very most uncomfortable silence, which is also not the best, but like active bullying? That's shocking. Those are some shit kids. But at the same time, I'm sure they just didn't really understand what was going on because they had been criticizing her for not escaping. But even worse than that, they told her she was lucky for getting kidnapped because of all the attention it brought, as if she wanted any of that attention. From junior high to high school and even into college, people couldn't let Jessica hear the end of it. They wanted to know why she didn't run. And although I kind of sat here and criticized middle schoolers, even though they were, you know, 13 years old and maybe didn't deserve to be ripped a new one, I will happily rip high school and college students a new one for treating her like that because that is insane. 
By that point, you really should know the difference between right and wrong and kind of grasp the severity of the situation and the fact that people even continued to bring it up in a way that was kind of accusatory to her is something I can't wrap my head around. So unsurprisingly, Jessica has a lot of bad memories associated with school because not only was she bullied endlessly, but also before everything, it was where Stephen Oliver had abused his position as a teacher aide to get her alone. But with the help of amazing teachers and her family, she was able to move on and make it so Oliver didn't take over her future like he did her childhood. In June of 1996, Stephen Oliver went on trial, and Jessica's testimony was crucial to his conviction. His lawyers tried to argue that Jessica had gone with him willingly and even lured him to Texas. A 13-year-old understood the situation, went with him willingly, which is crazy enough, but even crazier than that, they tried to suggest she lured him. Okay. The audacity of a few people in the story is absolutely astounding. Through hours of testimony and reliving her trauma, Jessica told her story to make sure Oliver couldn't hurt anyone else. He was found guilty of kidnapping, rape, and interstate transportation of a minor for immoral purposes and was sentenced to 40 years in prison without the possibility of parole. Before her kidnapping, Jessica loved writing and art, and after everything, she managed to find herself through art. She was able to keep up with her studies and even graduated college with honors, which, if you ask me, is an enormous accomplishment considering not only the unimaginable trauma that she went through as a 13-year-old, but also the years of endless torment and bullying, which also takes a huge toll on a developing brain. So that's a huge accomplishment in my book. She majored in psychology and minored in sociology and criminal justice law enforcement. Kick ass. I love that. Because of all the trauma she sustained physically, doctors believed she may never be able to have children, but Jessica miraculously was able to have two kids of her own after marrying a man she loves. And again, just love to hear that. She still has times where she struggles with memories, but she has a really great support system around her. And today she's an advocate for other survivors, doing all she can to defend others from going through the same thing. She said she's a symbol of hope for parents who have kids missing out there, and she gives hope to kids who have gone through something similar, that you can make it out of the darkness. She gives talks at schools about physical abuse and sexual abuse, and she feels like if telling her story helps anyone, then it's worth it. Which again just goes to show how unbelievably brave and strong that Jessica is and really speaks to her character. That she would choose to take something so horrifying and so unimaginable and turn it into a teaching experience and help so many other people out there, whether it's parents or children who have lived through a similar trauma. So hats off to Jessica. She is absolutely killing it. And I'm so happy to hear that she has a family of her own and a man that she loves And she's living her life and really just thriving because she definitely deserves that. But that's the end of Jessica's story. There are a lot of things I feel like I could say about this story, like how disappointing it is that her father allowed her to go with this man, even though her mother got an attorney involved to keep her away from him, or how terrifying it is that Stephen Oliver prepped for God only knows how long to get his life in order so that he could kidnap a 13-year-old and have nobody know where he was and have his life like kind of sorted out and have an alibi. And by alibi, I just mean like him saying he's in Detroit working a job. But also he had his ex-wife who he seemingly wasn't super in contact with, like back in the home living with his son. 
It's really terrifying the lengths that that man went to. But I don't want to leave off on a negative note, so why don't we just focus on the positives, like like the fact that the investigators never gave up and Monica and her brother absolutely never gave up and they got Jessica back and she was saved and she is now using that to better the lives of other people. So yeah, let's leave off on a positive note. We all wish Jessica and her family nothing but the best. And that's all I really have to say about that. So why don't we have a bit of a palate cleanser and I will tell you something good. My good thing this week is that I have been exposed to a blue sky and sun and slightly warmer weather and some palm trees, which is huge. It turns out that seasonal depression is cured by just a little blue sky. (laughs) And I know we all know that seasonal depression is a thing and people joke about it and whatever. It just, it really does suck. Like, although we know that's what's going on, when you're in it, it really is the worst. So I'm definitely grateful to be in a place where I can go and walk outside and not see some snow and be warm (laughs) and, and even see a palm tree, which is just fantastic. So I love that. And I'm also happy to see friends and, you know, be in the place that I was in for a little while. So I hope wherever you are, the skies are blue and it's not that cold. And just remember that the winter will be over soon. Spring's on the way. But anyway, thank you all so much for listening. If you would like access to a bunch of bonus episodes and vote on stories you want to hear, head over to patreon.com slash nottodaypodcast. You guys keep the lights on, so thank you very much. Check out our merch at nottodaypodcast.myshopify.com. If you or anyone you know has a story of survival that you'd like to share with us and possibly hear an upcoming listener's episode, send it to nottodaypodcast.gmail.com. We have an Instagram where you can see pictures of all the stories we talk about at nottoday underscore podcast. And we have a TikTok that is nottodaypodcast. So go check that out. And just keep breathing. Yeah. Yeah.